May the blessing of today, the gift of life, grant you the possibilities and potentials of what you need. Hey, Augusto, it's August. Where are you? We got to do this interview for the podcast. Well, here we are again, another episode of the Queer Core Podcast. My name is August Bernadiku and I'm your host. I'm a 26-year-old gay historian. The Queer Core Podcast is a celebration of the interviews I've conducted with LGBTQ activists and pioneers over the past 12 years. Our last episode featured Jewel Thais Williams, founder of the first gay black discotheque in America. This episode is all about the theater of the ridiculous, the radical genre of theater that shaped pop culture and embodied queer liberation. We didn't want to be like our parents. We didn't want to get married. We did not want to have children. We wanted to create our own paths. It's an oral history with three original performers in the theater, Augusto Machado, Tony Zanetta, and Ruby Lynn Rayner, the star of the Playhouse of the Ridiculous. I would wake up with glitter on my sheets forever. I mean, it never came off. Parts of this audio come from an intergenerational dialogue I did with Tony and Augusto earlier this year, back when you could still be in the room together. This episode is all about dramas, dreams realized, freaks, fags, and fun. A lot of the Playhouse were outsider people who did drugs and sex and so forth, and I have no memory due to drugs and drinks. <laughs> Before we go any further, I'd like to take a moment to thank our partner, Five Burrows Brewing Company. At this point, I've tried all their beers and I think I have a new favorite, the Gridlock Hazy IPA. Anytime you're stressed and feel like you're stuck in traffic, grab a Gridlock Hazy IPA. Now it's time to throw some glitter on your face. Let's get ridiculous. the 1960s, the Vietnam War was consuming American culture and lives. Many young men were forced to go to war under the penalty of law, and they looked for any way out of the draft. Gay men had a unique and simple way out of the draft, but that way could potentially ruin the rest of their lives. Because if you checked the box, you were mentally ill. You were officially mentally ill by the government. It went down in black and white. I checked the box because I thought, fuck you, I'm not going to lie to you to, <laughs> to, in order to go to go to your war. But anyway, there was that kind of pressure too. Um, but in the meantime, it was a lot of fun. All across the country, societal norms were being turned upside down. Young people were rejecting the notion that the only way to live was with a house, spouse, two kids, and a white picket fence. Revolution was spreading through every aspect of American life and things were getting weird, if not ridiculous. Nowhere was this shift in consciousness more visible than in major cities like New York. As we have learned from all of our previous episodes, gay life existed underground before the Stonewall Riots in 1969, the event that kick-started gay liberation around the world. Augusto remembers that night well. So were you there the first night? 
Uh, yes. Yes. How did you hear about it? Well, I, mean, I, I was on the street. I, I did an early session uh, at the trucks, and it was social. You, you get the, the fresh news of what's happening. Today, New York City's West Village piers are clean, shiny, and family-friendly. But in the late 1960s and in the 1970s, when libido ruled downtown, the piers were the site of some hardcore hookups. Along the piers at night, the ship's cargo trucks were parked and the rear truck doors were open. Use your imagination and times it by 10. It wasn't the first time Stonewall had a raid or any of the gay bars, except the situation at hand uh, was like a magnet with street kids like us. We had nothing to lose. That was the action of the moment and the time. It was an event. It was a happening. It's like, this is real life. That's real blood. People are, we're, we're, we're gonna fight the police. We're throwing things. And get Butch, girlfriend. Come on. So yep. you, you were literally having sex at the trucks and then you went to the riots? Honey Bunch, I had sex in the tea room that afternoon. Augusto Machado, originally from New York City, was left to fend for himself at an early age. I was a street kid on my own and independent. I was placed in various homes. It's sink or swim. I am a sissy, but I'm still here. And you do what you have to do to find your footing. When Tony Zanetta moved from Buffalo to New York City, his life changed. He saw people like himself, outsiders, artists and freaks who collectively had a vision to create fabulous art and to expose people to the alternative world that they never knew existed. You kind of um, found other crazy people and it, it wasn't a bad thing to be around crazy people. It was what you wanted. The crazier the better. I was always afraid I wasn't crazy enough. Um. <laughs> Ruby Lynn Rayner grew up in Long Island. She studied drama at Emerson College, but dropped out her freshman year because they wouldn't cast her in any plays. She moved to New York and got a job in the garment district. Her coworker, Sarah Screech, invited her to a rehearsal for Conquest of the Universe, put on by the Playhouse of the Ridiculous, and she finally landed a role. So I went to the rehearsal at John Vaccaro's loft on Great Jones Street. And it was this big, you know, unfinished loft. It was like fabulous, it was huge. And John saw me, took one look at me and he said, yeah, get, get on the stage. He put me right in the play. And I played the firewoman, which was like the chorus. And I thought one day I'm gonna be the conqueror's wife. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, she's gonna, something's gonna happen to her and I'm gonna be his new wife. So Beverly Grant was playing the conqueror's wife and she twisted her ankle and broke her ankle. And they came to, to me, John Dean and Louis Walden came to my apartment and said, you're going on tonight as Alice, the, the conqueror's wife, queen of the universe.
downtown New York has always been a safe space for people to freely express themselves. It remains a cultural mecca where people can live their truth and find others on the same wavelength. A lot has changed since Ruby, Augusto, and Tony were stomping around, but to this 26-year-old homo, downtown is still my home of the free. In the 1960s, downtown opened its arms to all the misfits of the world and a vibrant community formed. A community of creators focused on breaking apart from the rigid, benign illusion of American life. It was a very special time and place in history, a nexus of art, sexual liberation, and revolution. Can you explain, like, downtown at this time? It was fabulous. It was like a circus. It was like, it was just free. Everything was very free. You could walk down that, that uh, what's the 8th Street called over there? St. Mark's Place, right. Everybody used to walk down, like, you know, in different stages of nudity with uh, different, like, wild outfits on and glitter. And it was amazing. It was like, it was like the circus, like psychedelic circus. A lot of the 60s was about becoming who you are, do your own thing, uh, sexual revolution, women's liberation. Drugs. Well, drugs helped, that's for sure. <laughs> It was throwing off the mantle of what had come before. A renaissance of new art sprang out of this new New York. Every art form from music to fine art was being broken down and built up again in wild, colorful, and shocking ways. Theater was no different. One of the big transition events was Ronald Tavell's. Okay. What's the name of the play? Gorilla um, Queens? Boy, bless you. Oh, God bless you. And that collectively touched on all the madness and experience of our lives. And that we knew out of context all the reference characters and what have you. You know, uh, tricks on the street and who they slept with or what have you. That wasn't being addressed in the sexual revolution by Uptown at all. Gorilla Queen was brilliant. I loved Gorilla Queen. I think it took place in Africa or did it take place in the circus? I don't know. Does it make any difference? <laughs> but it, it, I mean, it did lampoon everything. And it, it was just, it was very, very witty, very, very funny. That, I just screeched through the whole thing with laughter. <laughs> Actor and director Ronald Tavell coined the term the theater of the ridiculous. He initially used the term to describe his own productions, but its meaning quickly expanded when he wrote what would become the genre's manifesto. He said, we have passed beyond the absurd. Our position is absolutely preposterous. The genre knocked down the long revered pillars of theater. Naturalistic acting and classical storytelling was no longer essential to any respectable piece of work. Theater in the 60s was all about the method. Stanislavski, uh, naturalism, realism. This was all about defiance, irreverence. It was about standing up and speaking for yourself. In 1965, John Vaccaro, a brilliant young man who was deep in the burgeoning film and art scene, met Tavell. In the summer of 1965, 
Tavel and Vaccaro produced Shower and The Life of Juanita Castro, which were originally intended to be films by Andy Warhol. The films didn't materialize, and Tavel decided to have them performed as plays, producing them together on a double bill called Theater of the Ridiculous. The Life of Lady Godiva, written by Tavel and directed by Vaccaro in 1967, was the first official production by the Playhouse of the Ridiculous. The Life of Lady Godiva featured another crucial figure, Charles Ludlum. More on him later. The theater quickly became a counterculture sensation with its outlandish storylines, psychedelic visuals, and cutting, shocking takedowns of conservative American culture and sexuality. He was creating a new American theater. He did create a new American theater. It, it was, uh, there was a theater of the absurd in Europe, there was the theater of the ridiculous in the United States. And John had lived in Japan. A lot of this is very, very uh, uh, influenced by Kabuki. It was very stylized, the makeup. He came to New York, he thought he was gonna be like hanging out with the abstract expressionists. Abstract expressionists were not gonna hang out with John because that was a very, very macho world. Very homophobic, very macho. But in his way, he was an abstract expressionist because he created this, this color and activity on stage. It wasn't choreographed, but it was choreography. It was, it was dance, but it wasn't dance. He didn't care that much about the play, although he wanted the play to be heard, but it was all this other stuff that was really what really made it magical. One of the most sensational of these shows was Heaven Grand and Amber Orbit. All right, this is a song. You can keep it going, but keep it down, baby. Ooh, yeah. I hated Heaven Grand and Amber Orbit which is probably sacrilegious, because that was their big hit. That was written by Jackie Curtis, starring your friend Ruby Lynn Rayner. In Heaven Grand and Amber Orbit, many, many, many years ago, before all of you were born. All of New York City loved Heaven Grand and Amber Orbit, except Tony Zanetta just didn't get the fact that I have the biggest balls in town. He's got the biggest balls in town. rock musical set in a bordello written by Warhol superstar Jackie Curtis. It featured a baby deformed by the drug thalidomide. Thalidomide baby lives in formaldehyde, swims in formaldehyde, where do the four winds blow? Female conjoined triplets and a stumped armed princess. Jack Kroll of Newsweek described it as the wildest and in some ways the best show in New York an explosion of pure theatrical energy, unconfined by any ideas of form, content, structure, or even rationality. And soon, they covered the entire country. They were huge. People looked up, and they, all they could see were balls. It was just like one loud scream. And Gracia stood in the front of the stage. He'd lost weight by that time, but he was like wearing a diaper, with shit stains. 
I mean, the whole play to me was an assault, which was a marker of the playoffs of the ridiculous. But I wasn't quite ready for it yet. You could do anything because it was like anything. It was off off Broadway. And that's where we got away with everything. There was nothing that was like sacrosanct. Another show, Cockstrong, written by Tom Murren, was what you might call interactive theater. We had a 12-foot penis hooked up to the faucet in the in the back of the dressing room. And it was the penis came at the end of this Kama Sutra ballet and came over the audience. But it just came water. And the audience, it was the heat wave and the air conditioning broke and the audience went, ah, oh, they loved it. He's got the The mastermind behind the madness of the Playhouse of the Ridiculous was John Vaccaro. Born in Ohio in 1929, John was confused by his Roman Catholic upbringing in a town that he said had nine blocks of whorehouses. He briefly served in the Navy and graduated from Ohio State University before moving to New York City where he got into acting. He appeared in Normal Love and Flaming Creatures by the influential underground director Jack Smith. Vaccaro pushed his cast members hard, playing on their vulnerabilities to win their raw talent. While we now have laws making work a safe, non-confrontational environment, this was the mid-1960s. There was nothing easy about John. His work was challenging, he, he was challenging. He was Sicilian, he, he, he could be really vicious, but he was also brilliant. And it was really kind of exciting to be around John and around his work. John would bully us and he would push us to the edge of madness. Paul Foster, one of the founders of Mama, uh, did a version of Satyricon mm. after um, Fellini did his, and uh, he wanted realism. And he saw the troupe tear her clothes off. And when I, I was looking, who's her? And it was me. <laughs> and they ripped my t-shirt, my underpants, and everything. And all through this rehearsal. And it was a, I was like, Sean, I was naked. And he says, let's not make a fuss over a little thing like that. <laughs> you think someone could be the same style director that he was now? In a word, no. I don't think that could happen any, anymore. Nothing John did was politically correct. Nothing. You know, I <laughs> I did a, the crow in the Moke Eater, and I had to eat a piece of raw liver, and, the, and sometimes it was bad, and people in the audience used to, I mean, the Moke Eater was so disturbing that people in the audience used to throw up. Another signature of Vaccaro's style was glitter. Lots of it. He bought bags and bags of glitter on Canal Street. Everybody was covered with glitter. Um, it was beautiful to look at. It was extreme. What else was it? <laughs> very, very difficult to get off. John runs backstage one day and says, okay, everybody listen to me. You can't use the red glitter. Don't use the red glitter. And I was putting the red glitter on my lips. I was using it on my lips every night. I was packing like thick red glitter on my lips and I would crunch on it. I would hear this crunching noise. And we said to John, John, why can't we use the red glitter? 
He said, it's made out of glass. Vaccaro's ferocity and passion could be seen outside of the theater as well. Nowhere is clearer than in his relationship with Charles Ludlum. Their brief fling would shape the rest of their lives and the newly formed genre. In 1967, Vaccaro directed Big Hotel, which was written by Ludlum. Big Hotel continued the genre's theme of lifting from pop culture, and much of its content was from the Greta Garbo film it parodied, Grand Hotel. The play also borrowed from such disparate sources as the film adaptation of Oscar Wilde's Salome, Playboy cartoons, television commercials, and old Wonder Woman comics. Big Hotel was the beginning of the end for the potential partners. Before they parted ways, Ludlum presented a new play titled Conquest of the Universe with the subtitle When Queens Collide. The pair began arguing during the play's rehearsals, and for reasons we may likely never know, Charles quit and went on to found his own rival theater company with the not-so-subtle name The Ridiculous Theatrical Company. Charles left, and the hell company left with him. <laughs> But this wasn't the end of the play for Vaccaro. In place of his previous actors, Vaccaro cast Warhol superstars like Taylor Mead, On Dean, Mary Warnoff, Renee Ricard, and of course, our precious gem, Ruby Lynn Rayner. Vaccaro staged his version called Conquest of the Universe in November 1967 at the Bowery Lane Theatre. And Ludlum presented his version called When Queens Collide in January 1968 at the Gate Theater. We went to the Obies and we had one table for the Playhouse of the Ridiculous and another table with the whole uh, Ridiculous Theatrical Company. And when they got their award, we went boo! And they went yay! And we got our award, we went yay! And they went boo! <laughs> it was very juvenile. What was the difference between Ludlum and Vaccaro's style? Oh, it's very obvious uh, that Charles Ludlum's work was very structured, well-acted, well-produced. John's work was very deep, very political. I mean, it was really a gesture of hatred. <laughs> and uh, it was pretty harsh. When it was good, it was fantastic. And when it was bad, it was unbearable. Charles's was more amusing and more entertaining. It was more accessible. I don't, want to, I don't want to give the wrong impression that it was light, but it was certainly lighter than the Playhouse. While the cast members maintained friendships and supported each other, Vaccaro never forgave his once friend and held on to the animosity for the rest of his life. It was separate worlds. It became very separate worlds. There was very little crossover. It's sort of, you're put in uh, a place like with couples, like they're going together or they split up and somehow one or the other expects you to be their friend and drop the other. Why did he carry it for the rest of his life? You know, I never could figure that out. He held on to it like a, like a dog with a bone. He, he never let it go. It's an understatement to say that the theater of the ridiculous changed lives. Here's another curveball for you, David Bowie. In 
1971, Tony was cast as Andy Warhol in a play directed by his old ridiculous friend, Tony Ingracia, called Pork. Andy Warhol wanted to do this play, Pork, which was all of Bridget Berlin's cassette tape recordings. Pork now is kind of the stepchild of the ridiculous. It's still the ridiculous style, but it's Ingracia's spin on it. His sensibility is the same in that, it, in that it ridicules everyone and everything. You know, it's still coming from that same place of defiance and ridicule and, and seeing everything as absurd. Pork turned into a smash with rave reviews and the cast soon became darlings of the press. One of the attendees was David Bowie whose Ziggy Stardust period lifted heavily from the theater of the ridiculous. Bowie quickly hired Tony to work at his management company, Main Man. That same sense of spectacle and flamboyance that surrounded all of the ridiculous and all of the Ingrassia's work transferred to Bowie. And I, and I, and I think it's all also relevant in, in, in the history, in gay history, because Standing on stage and not being and not being apologetic, not, uh, and saying this is who I am, transferred to Bowie. He made an announcement at one point that he was gay, whether he was or he wasn't, it's kind of irrelevant. It brought a spotlight onto um, the gay world. Can you tell us about how he had sex with him? I don't know if that'll be in the podcast, but we might need it. What do you want? We want me to tell you that story? Yeah, is that okay? I don't know, maybe. When you talk about that, then people just fasten, they, they, they fasten onto that and they don't hear anything else. It goes live huh? next week, so... Well, I, 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 let me talk about it quickly. David is a very seductive person, very seductive. And we had a good relationship. And it did start out as kind of a seduction. We did have a little sexual fling. It was nothing heavy. But later I would think of it in a, in a kind of a different way because... You know, everyone is so curious about his sexuality. What, what is he? Is he gay? Is he trans? And I think it was all, that was all irrelevant to him. I think that, that sex to him was kind of a, just another way of, like, um, talking to someone. <laughs> Everything he did was fodder for his art. He didn't do anything that didn't go back in and come back out as art. While Charles Ludlum and John Beccaro were able to persevere and evolve with the times, their troops weren't able to last. In 1984, at age 44, Charles Ludlum died of AIDS. His death was the first obituary on the front page of the New York Times to mention that the cause of death was AIDS. He left behind 29 finished plays. His longtime partner, Everett Quinton, keeps the troop's spirit alive and recently revamped When Queens Collide. John Vaccaro stopped directing in the 1980s. Like everything in art and culture, the audience turns their attention to what's new and fresh. Eventually, it just kind of petered out. The audiences, he didn't work for his audiences. I tried to explain to him in Pineapple Face. That was, I think, the last Vaccaro play I did. It was built uh, around Noriega, and uh, I played Noriega's uh, prostitute mistress. And I had these big, huge tits and a big ass I put on. But anyway, um, 
people really didn't come like they used to come, you know? They, they weren't packing the house. So we tried to explain to John, you have to, you have to work for it. You have to promote it. But yeah, he'd just get pissed off. <laughs> he'd say, these fuckers, <laughs> fuck them all. And he just thought, I'll give up. He gave up. He just gave up on the theater. Ridiculous left an undeniable impact on 20th century pop culture. The musical Hair, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, 1970s Glam Rock, and the Coquettes, who we featured in episode number one of the Queer Core podcast, all took their inspiration from the theater of the ridiculous. How do you think it impacted gay liberation? Well, it was liberating. <laughs> That's how. <laughs> it was unapologetically queer. It was gay, but it wasn't gay theater. You know, after the Playhouse, there was such a thing as gay theater, which usually had a gay theme, a gay subject. It was about being gay. This was not any of that. But this was gay people not trying to hide their gayness. It was queer people not trying to hide that they were queer. It was men dressed as women. It was women dressed as men. It was a defiant presentation. This is this is who we are. You can go fuck yourself if you don't like it. So it was very much part of gay liberation and it very much influenced gay liberation because, again, it was so liberating. It's a cross-pollinization of the misfits that had to express themselves in some manner, way, shape, or form, just not performing on the street. The natural gravitation, there's some place we could do this. What did you learn from your time in the Playhouse? Oh my God. It taught me everything. You can't beat having experience on the stage. I remember telling this little girl next door whose mother, you know, she's my neighbor, and she came over and she said, listen, I'm having a hard time. Irena has a part in this play and she has stage fright. So could you talk to her? And I said, sure. She came over and I said, listen, no matter what you do, no matter how you screw up, there's nothing that would scare people away from loving you. They are going to love you no matter what you do. And that's the way I feel about the theater. Well, there you have it. 
talk about queens colliding. This is August from the Queer Core Podcast. Thank you to each and every one of you, and thanks to our partner, Five Burrows Brewing Company. Our next episode will feature Fairy Argyle Rainbow, the unsung and unknown architect of the rainbow flag, and Lee Mentley, the man who ran the gay center it was created at. The Queer Core Podcast is produced by Chris Coates and myself, and is edited by Chris Coates. Our theme song, Silicon Valley, is by Silka Berlin and the Addictions. The songs Heaven Grand and Amber Orbit and Biggest Balls are by Ruby Lynn Rayner and written by Ruby Lynn Rayner and Warhol superstar Jackie Curtis. The song Ruby from the Wrong Side of Town is also by Ruby Lynn Rayner and written by Ruby Lynn Rayner. The song Hard as a Rock is by Cherry Vanilla and written by Cherry Vanilla and Louis Lepore. The song Something's Gotta Change is by Frightwig and is written by Deanna Mitchell. The audio from my intergenerational dialogue with Tony Nagusto was recorded by Bob Gallagher. Thanks again, everyone, and please share and tag us with the hashtag QueerCorePodcast. And if you have an extra five seconds, add us on Instagram at QueerCorePod and go to our website, QueerCorePod.com. Until next time, peace out. Yeah.